Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor David. It is my privilege to bring a message from God's Word this morning. So it is a hot topic. After all of that victorious songs and, and excitement and all of that, it is a hot topic to talk about a king who had fallen. And so that's what we want to talk about today, but I'll do my very best to provide the victory that's available in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So up on the screen, you will see some names. And uh, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Gordon MacDonald, Frank Tillapaw, Ted Haggard, and I could have put many, many, many other names on this list. Do you recognize any of them? Some of you may have been too young to remember some of these names. Now here's the point. All of them have two things in common. First, they were all Christian leaders. Second, they all fell into sin at the pinnacle of their careers. All were Christian leaders and they all fell into sin at the pinnacle of their careers. Have you ever wondered why that happens? And this morning as we continue our sermon series from the life of David, King David that is, we find him at the pinnacle of his career. He has finally become the king of Israel that God has promised him. And up on the big screen you will find a sketch of some of the key events that we have been talking about in the life of King David. Here it is. He was a shepherd boy, meaning that he was the youngest of seven sons, and he was taking care of his father's sheep while his brothers, older brothers, were serving in the military of their nation, Israel, under the king, Saul. Then along the way, God rejects King Saul and anoints David as king. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, meaning that the Spirit of God could not wait to indwell in David. And David was anointed as king, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. And with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, David kills Goliath and people celebrate by saying, Saul has struck down thousands and David his ten thousands. And as a result, King Saul becomes jealous of David and seeks to kill him. So David flees from King Saul, constantly being on the run, hiding in the deserts and cave, caves of Israel. On two occasions, 
David gets the opportunity to actually kill Saul and become king of Israel. But he refuses to do so because he says this, that Saul was God's anointed and that he wouldn't dare to touch God's anointed. That was his reason. Then his best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be also King Saul's son, dies in a war. And soon thereafter, King Saul dies also in that same war. And David is deeply grieved by their deaths. And after their deaths, David first becomes the king of his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, and eventually the king of the whole nation of Israel. Now, I want you to notice that this entire process of David from being a shepherd boy to becoming king of Israel, according to one commentary anyways, took about 13 years. Long time. And through peaks and valleys, God teaches great lessons to David and prepares him to be king of Israel. That's, the, that's one of the things that I am learning these days is that, you know, as you go through peaks and valleys in life, it's not about the other people. It's really about myself. That what is God teaching me through the peaks and valleys of life? And what is that he's preparing me through all of those experiences? And God even calls David a man after my own heart. I don't know of anybody being called by God like that in the Bible. So today, as we begin this, this, this particular sermon, we find King David as the pinnacle of his career. He has finally become king. Then something so terrible happens in his life that he falls into sin. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as we go through the sermon, ask yourselves, why did this happen? How, how can a person who God himself calls the man after my own heart, A man at one point in his life refused to kill another person because he was God's anointed. A man who every time he did something, he inquired of God before he ventured into that particular thing. And God always spoke to him. But he falls into this terrible, terrible sin. Why did it happen? Can that happen to any one of us? In fact, if you are a reader, particularly leadership books or something like that, there was actually a book called How the Mighty Fall. And here it is. 
how did this mighty man of God fall? So let's begin with verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And if you are using the blue Bible of the church, it's page 333. Now, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravished the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You see, in the ancient Near East or the Middle East, Spring was considered to be the time to go to war, and there was at least two reasons. Number one, the weather was good. Because it was, in the winter time, it was rainy and it was cold, and, and every time that soldiers went, went to war, they slept in the open fields. There were no apartments, there were no barracks, you know, they basically slept in the open field. And it was just cold. Furthermore, they only had, you know, horses and chariots. They didn't have the motorized vehicles that we have, or they didn't have the planes or the cars or the Humvees, so none of those were available, just horses and chariots. And when, when, the, when, when it was rainy and wet, these wheels got stuck in the mud, preventing them from advancing as they defeated the enemies. So spring was the good time to go to war. And the second reason is that in those days, they didn't have the facilities that we have to pack up food with them to take it to the war so that they could feed their soldiers. Those facilities were not available. They only had enough facilities, horses and chariots really, to carry weapons. Not enough space to carry food with them. So what they did was actually, spring was the harvest time. The fields were ripe and there was wheat and barley wherever that they went. And basically the soldiers ate from the fields. Plucked barley and wheat and whatever else that they were able to pick and they ate. And so these are the two reasons, perhaps there are others, but these are the two main reasons why kings in the ancient Near East or the Middle East went to war in the springtime and not during the wintertime. Now in the 13 years leading up to from, the she- from being a shepherd boy to becoming king, King David as described in the Bible had led his nation to fight all of these battles. In fact, that was one of the responsibilities of the king to lead his nation in the battles. In fact, it was God's command that the king would lead his nation in the battles that they were to fight. But here we read that this time he chooses to stay at home in Jerusalem. Instead, we also read that David, while staying at home, sends his military under the command of Joab. Further, he sends his servants and 
all Israel, meaning that all men who were eligible to serve in the military, men who were over the age of 20 years old, were sent to fight in this battle against the Ammonites. Every man who was eligible to fight goes to war except David. He was not doing what he was supposed to do. And one commentary put it this way, because of his success and status as Israel's king, David had become puffed up and arrogant. He has come to see himself as better than the rest of the Israelites. They need to go to war, but, but he does not. They need to sleep in the open fields, to, but he needs to get rest in his own bed in his palace. David misuses or abuses his status and privilege due to pride and arrogance. Verses 2 through 4. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David said, sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now notice the statement there. David arose from his couch one late afternoon. That is, David didn't get up until the evening. In fact, one commentary said that this was probably a habit developed over time and not just a one-time event. David did not stay at home to meditate on the law of Moses or to write another psalm or two. Rather, he stayed at home to stay in bed, probably indulging himself and not doing any kingly work. In other words, David was waking up just as everybody else was getting ready to go to sleep. When he could not stand his bed any longer, he goes to the roof of his palace to stroll around. And by the way, in the ancient world, I don't know if you know this or not, in the ancient world, usually the kings built their palaces on the top of the hill, the highest point in the nation. The reason is this, because when you build it in the highest point of the nation, you could look around farther into the kingdom and see what was going on. Is anybody rebelling? Are enemies approaching us, approaching them to, to, and, and, and trying to you know, come to war with them? So, so they, they, you would usually choose the top of the hill, the, usually the highest point in the, in the nation, 
And that's where they built the palaces. And David was no exception. But you know what the problem is? You could, from the top of the hill, you could see every household and everything that they are doing, if they are doing it outside of their home. And in fact, you know, one of the stories that I read said, you know what, when we drive on the dry, on, on highway, there are cars and trucks. The trucks are higher than the cars, aren't they not? And the truck drivers can see things that the rest of us cannot see. It was the same way with David who had his palace on the top of the hill. Now, what was Bathsheba doing? Well, she was about to go to bed and she was taking a shower. And in fact, whereas David had his own private bathroom and restroom and shower, whatever that we want to call, in his palace, it's a private bathroom. A poor woman like Bathsheba did not have a private bathroom. In fact, on the picture I want to show you, this is from Sri Lanka, where I come from. This is a well in a home. In fact, this is from one of Jem's homes, the, the home that she grew up in. So this is the kind of well that we had. You see the, on, the, on, on the back of it, there is some privacy there that I'm going to use a... There's some privacy there. It's kind of hidden. And so you draw water from this particular well and you bathe. We were never naked because it's outside. And so we, we, if you're a man, you wore something, a shorts or something like that. And women, you know, wrap around a cloth or something like that. And that's the way that we bathed. It was a very similar situation. She was bathing outside because that's all they had. Perhaps, by the way, in the ancient Near East, by the way, they didn't, each household did not have a well like this. In fact, there was a common well someplace, so they all went to have their ba ba bathing done there. But David, having a hill, having the palace on the top of the hill, was able to see it. And this is what happens when you have too much time on our hands. So David notices her beauty, inquires about her, and the word comes back that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, that would have stopped him in his tracks and not let him go any farther. Because she's a married woman, someone else's wife. Second, the Old Testament law prohibited adultery. Third, it prescribed death penalty for those who violate that Old Testament law. Fourth, she was the daughter of Eliam, 
one of his best fighters. In fact, you will see in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, it says, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gileo, listed among the mighty men of David. And then you follow a little further, who is the father of Eliam? He was the best counselor that David, King David had ever had in his kingdom. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 23, Now in those days the counsel that Ahitopel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahitopel esteemed by both David and by his son Absalom. You see, as far as I could see, there were at least four reasons. She was a married woman, someone else's wife, Old Testament law prohibited it, and the penalty was death. And then here it is, she comes from a family that was loyal and well-known to King David. But none of these stopped David. He has no regard at at this point in his life for God's word. He has no regard for loyalty and friendship. Instead, he brings her to the palace and has sex with her. Obviously, she has no power to put up any resistance because David was king. And he can do whatever he pleases. In fact, we had a conversation about this in our pastoral team meeting last week, and one of the pastors said that Sheba was in one sense raped. You know, it has been said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. As King David has the power and he uses it for his own benefit at the expense of others. He sends all eligible men 20 years or older to war, but he stays at home. He sends people to inquire about Bathsheba and they obey. He sends messengers to bring her to the palace and she comes. At the height of his success, King David misuses his status, power, and privilege. But the trouble is, there's more. And please look with me to verses 5 through 17. We are not going to read this. But in verse 5, we read this. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now she sends this word back to King David a month later. When her periods had stopped, she realized that she had become pregnant. So she sends the word to David. Now, desperate to cover up his sin, David embarks in a series of acts that are despicable. And as readers of the story, you and I get to see the snowballing effect of sin. 
So let's go through them without reading through them. I'll tell you the story. Plan A. Bring Uriah home, the husband of Petsiba home, and having spent one intimate night with his wife. Nine months later, Bathsheba would have a child, Uriah would be ecstatic, and David would have total deniability. Not one, not even the servant who had brought Bathsheba to David could prove that David fathered the child. But in the story we read that Uriah does not go to his house. Instead, he sleeps at the door of king's house along with all the other servants. When plan A fails, David goes to plan B. Bully or pressure Uriah into submission. After all, David is his king. So David kind of scolds him saying, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? You know, these words are hurtful for a loyal soldier. Nevertheless, Uriah responds respectfully saying, and here it is up on the screen, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Here's a man, David, who was at the pinnacle of his career, has no regard for God's word, no regard for loyalties and friendship. And here we find a poor soldier in his military who has everything that David is not. In saying this, Uriah expresses more commitment to Yahweh's war against the Ammonites than King David, the anointed one of Yahweh. Uriah expresses more solidarity with the soldiers than King David, the commander of the chief of military. So plan B fails. David goes to plan C. Get Uriah drunk. Hopefully that would cause him to go to his wife. And that doesn't work either. In fact, one commentator said this, Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. So plan C fails, so he goes to plan D. Have Uriah killed in the war with the Ammonites? So David gives specific instructions to his commander Joab. Put Uriah in the front lines in the hardest fighting areas and then draw back from him. That plan, of course, works. Uriah is killed along with several other soldiers. 
King David's premeditated plans create several widows and fatherless children that day. And one commentator said, David has disobeyed three of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not murder. And gone are the days when David inquires of the Lord and waits for the Lord to give him instructions before he ventured out to do something. After the death of Uriah, David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and the whole thing has been perfectly covered up. See, this is where, you know, uh, that, you know as, as you're reading this story, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And as readers of the story, you and I are left to wonder, how can a man whom God himself calls a man after my own heart, Commit something like this. In fact, you might even wonder, where is God in all of this? What is he doing? And then you also wonder, can this happen to any of us? Now let's continue the story of Jim Baker. One of the names I put up earlier. He was a well-known evangelist of his time who kind of preached a form of prosperity gospel. He had his own television network called PTL, or Praise the Lord Television Network. In addition, along the way, he also built a theme park called Heritage USA in South Carolina. At the height of his success, he was raking in $1 million per week. Then came the revelation that he had had a sexual affair with the woman, the church secretary. And to buy her silence, he had paid $279,000 from the church or the ministry funds. Not his own money, but the ministry funds or the church funds. Do you see the snowballing or the spiraling effect of sin? One sin leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. That happened with David. That happened with Jim Baker. This revelation resulted in his resignation. Subsequently, he was found guilty of 24 counts of fraud and sentenced to 45 years in prison. On appeal, his prison term was reduced to eight years, and he was released after serving five years. And he still owes, as far as I know, to this day, $6 million to the IRS. And here's an interesting fact. 
He was a preacher, mind you. But he said that he read the Bible all the way through for the first time while in prison. And came to the realization that he had used some of the scriptures out of context as he preached prosperity gospel. Jerry Falwell, the prominent Christian leader at the time, called Baker, and I quote, and see this, a liar, an embezzler, a sexual deviant, and the greatest scab and cancer on the face of Christianity in 2,000 years of church history. Wow. Can something like this happen to you? Can something like this happen to me? The sad reality is, yes, it can. It can happen to any one of us. No matter how close we think we live with God, no matter how much responsibility we think that we are given in God's kingdom, no matter how power that we think that we hold, we too can fall, said one commentary. Pride, arrogance, lead to misuse of status, power, and privilege, which in turn leads to sin and its snowballing effect. And if you did not remember any of those I have said, here's what it is. Jim Collins, who wrote the book, How the Mighty Fall, coined a phrase called hubris born of success. David was at the pinnacle of his career. Jim Baker was at the pinnacle of his career. That's success. But the hubris shows up in many different ways. Pride, arrogance, misuse or abuse of status, privilege, and power, which results in sin. And if that sin is not taken care of, we are caught in this snowballing effect, entangled with sin. And it's a never-ending saga. And that's hubris. Born of success. But the question that I want to wrestle with this morning is not that. We know that can happen to any of us. It happened to King David. It happened to Jim Baker. And it happened to some of the men that, whose names I put on the screen. It can happen to any one of us. But the question is this. Is there hope? For people such as these, Jim Baker, Kim da King, King David, and others among us who are caught in this snowballing effect of sin. Thankfully, the answer is yes. And that's the good news. And please look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26. And following. When the wife of Uriah heard 
that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Another Bible translator put it much stronger. In fact, it says, it's a Holman Christian standard Bible that says, the Lord considered what David has done evil. But even so, look with me to the very next verse. Look with me to the very, very next verse. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's where the story turns. And that's where the main idea of the, of the story lies. That's the surprising element. God was upset. But God sends Nathan to David. In other words, it is the Lord who takes the initiative to redeem David. He sends Nathan. That's our God. And he does this, the Bible says, because of his great love for and mercy towards sinners. Show me another God in another religion who does this. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In Romans 5, 8, we read, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our God takes the initiative himself, no matter how big the sin is. You see, nine months have gone by since David committed this sin. The child conceived by David's sinful sexual union is now born. That's what we read there, right? And she became his wife and bore him a son. And for nine months, David thought that he had covered it up. But the Lord knew it all along. Because nothing is hidden from God. See, that's the other thing. You know, again, I, I'm going to call us here today to really examine ourselves and see, are, there, are we trapped in sense, small or big? And if we think somehow nobody else knows and therefore, we don't have to verbalize it. We can cover it up. I think we are mistaken. Because the Lord knows 
Now, having said that, do you have Nathans in your life that you would recognize as God sent? If somebody were to come in and confront you about something, would you recognize that God had sent this person as my Nathan? You know, when confronted by Nathan about his sin, here's the, here's the thing that happens. David does not give any excuses. David does not put up any resistance. Instead, he completely, totally, genuinely repents by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord said, you are not going to die. You are forgiven. So my brothers and sisters at Midland Free, if any of you are here this morning, entangled by sin and caught in its snowballing effect, don't try to hide it. The Lord knows it already. And if you are hearing God's voice this morning, don't put up any resistance. Don't get, give any excuses. Who knows? The sermon this morning might be the Nathan that God has sent you away to call you to repentance. Every sin, big or small, whether, whether, uh, whether it's, uh, regardless of whether it's committed against self or others, is a sin against God. That's what David said. I have sinned against the Lord. Your sin may be of sexual nature like David's. Your sin may be pride and arrogance like David's. Your sin may be misuse or misabuse of status, power, and privilege like David's. Your sin may be scheming and manipulating and bullying like David's. Or your sin may be something else. God forgives them all. There's no sin that God is unable to forgive. Therefore, confess your sin to the Lord and seek his forgiveness. You see, earlier in the sermon, I put up, I think, five different names. Talked about one already, Jim Baker. I, know, I don't know how the stories of all the other men listed on the slide ended. But I know how one story ended. <clears throat> and that's Gordon McDonald's. 
He was my pastor for many years at my former church in Grace Chapel, Lexington, Massachusetts. He was a mega church pastor before there were many mega churches here in the United States. He was at the pinnacle of his career. When he, when he fell into a sexual sin, a one-night stand with the woman that he was counseling at the time. When the sin came to light, he did not put up any resistance. He did not give any excuses. Instead, he publicly confessed his sin, resigned his position, and submitted himself to a recovery and restoration process set up by the church. It was two years of hard work examining all aspects of his life, spirituality, marriage, parenting, etc., to determine the root causes that led him to this particular sin. After restoration, he served as a pastor in New York, and then five years later, Grace Chapel was looking for a senior pastor. It was very interesting that God closed all doors, and there was one candidate standing at the end of the process. And that was Gordon McDonald. So Grace Chapel hired him back. And I had the privilege to serve with him on the elder board as well as later on serve with him on staff. And he had a successful second season of ministry there until his retirement. And to me, as I reflected on his story, he has written about this, so that's why he could stand here in the pulpit and tell you the whole story. The fact that God put him where he was, at the pinnacle, at that very church, with the very same people, is an indication, this is my personal opinion, that God had fully, completely, totally forgiven him. The same forgiveness is available to all of us. So on this day of August 13th at about 11.46 a.m., if the Lord is speaking to you that you need to bring your sins to God, because he knows it, and seek his forgiveness so that you could live freely, enjoying his presence in your life, I invite you to do so. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And come before the Lord, and I'm going to give you a minute or so to bring anything, anything that you have before the Lord and seek his complete, total forgiveness.
Lord Jesus, you heard the confessions of your people. You heard the things that they confessed. You heard the cries of their hearts. And you know their, the desires of their hearts to be forgiven by you and to live a life free of guilt, but instead be filled with joy. And I pray that you would grant that to each and everyone who brought their sins to you this morning. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.